On this week's episode of The Insight, the intelligence fusion analysts are focusing on the political and security risks surrounding the construction of pipelines across the world. Such risks are commonly referred to as pipeline politics and are best broken down into political considerations on an international level and a local level. At the podcast desk today, we have Max Taylor, Faraj Patney, Vincent Fevrier and Scott MacDonald. To make sure you don't miss any new content from the team, don't forget to hit subscribe. Over to the analysts. This week's podcast focuses on the political and security-related risks associated with pipelines and their construction. The risks are often referred to as pipeline politics and can be divided into two distinct categories. So to break down the security threats, we're going to focus on two categories. The first being uh, relationships between international actors, so between governments and between states. And the second category being uh, more local levels, so between non-state actors, companies and and internal politics related to pipelines. So I'm going to get the ball rolling and I'm going to talk about Central Asia. And I find this Central Asia region in, the, in regards to pipelines a uh, really interesting region, simply because there's not actually been that much direct conflict between the states here. But nonetheless, there has been a significant amount of politics and, um, and I guess you could say gamesmanship in, in how these, poli- these pipelines have been created and the politics surrounding them. So in the Central Asian region, you've got three main, uh, three main groups of actors. So you have the Russian government, the Chinese government, and the various Central Asian governments who at times coordinate with each other and at times act completely independently. So what makes this part of the world important for Russia is that they are relying on Central Asian gas to supply their own domestic demand. And they use gas taken from within Russian territory to export into Europe. So the gas that uh, Russia is exporting to Europe, as Scott will come on to later, is used to leverage, uh, is used for political leverage against European states. However, without the Central Asian gas supplying Russian domestic markets, Russia hasn't got the option to send its own gas to Europe. So therefore, Russia needs the Central Asian gas to keep coming in at a consistent rate in order to keep uh, to maintain its leverage in Europe. For China, uh, the the, the, Asia, the region is incredibly important because the Chinese economy grows as does its population and consequently as does its demand for natural resources such as gas and oil. So uh, pipelines running from Central Asia to China have increased over the years as has uh, gas and oil output that, uh, exports running to China. And China is becoming one of the biggest markets for, for, Russia, uh, for Central Asian oil and gas. So this in itself, whilst China and Russia are largely aligned when it comes to international politics, this region does see potential conflict between the two, the two major states. So Central Asia has always been part of the Russian sphere of influence, with the same Central Asian states being former Soviet states. And many of the governments are closely aligned with Russia politically. So a Chinese, Chinese incursions into the Russian sphere of influence may, may be treated with a more hostile approach. For the time being, Russia and China have largely coordinated through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And this is this is uh, avoided major open conflicts. However, with that said, as the Chinese economy grows, I think we can expect to see more more issues and more tensions between the two as China begins to encroach on what Russia sees as a sphere of influence even more. And it's important not to forget about the Central Asian states as well. You know, they're not they're not um 
they're not static assets in this. They are they are actors with their own agency as well. So Turkmenistan, for example, has provided much of, of Russia's gas, which we talked about earlier, how Russia uses this uh, foreign gas for its domestic markets. And Turkmenistan has typically provided much of this gas. So Turkmenistan, which is desperate to try and diversify its supply, has tried to, uh, tried to create pipelines of China as well to try and supply Chinese gas. So as a result, Turkmenistan has started to diversify its, its clientele, I guess you could say. But at the same time, Turkmenistan's economy is built largely on, uh, on, on finance gained from these, these pipelines. And so it's very vulnerable to, for example, uh, China maybe finding other suppliers, maybe cheaper suppliers from elsewhere in the world, or even Russia starting to increase its own gas, uh, gas extraction, meaning it has less demand for Turkmen gas. So this region really is important. And with all these individual states in mind, it's important to try and, try and think of each one as independently. And whilst there has been levels of cooperation between Russia, China and the various Central Asian states, there has also been, uh, there has also been tensions. And I think as time goes on, it's only going to get worse. So I've spoken here about Russia, actually, and the Russian relationship with Europe. So I think it's fitting, Scott, for you to go next, for you just to talk about uh, Russian gas in Europe. Thanks, Max. Um- so in terms of looking at um, pipeline politics um, in Russia and Northern Europe, um, we would be discussing Gazprom's um, Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2 pipelines. Um, internationally, this is controversial um, between the European Union and the United States, as well as the United States and NATO. Um, from the American point of view, um, they're sitting wondering why they're providing so much um, investment and troop numbers in Europe, particularly in Poland and in Germany, when European countries, the um, Western European countries, are looking to get increased gas supplies from Russia, essentially giving them the, the backdoor key. Um, and in fact, we've seen yesterday uh, the American announcement that they're going to withdraw 11,900 troops from Germany, which I think we can see as a related uh, related to the construction of Nord Stream 2. Uh, in terms of the Europeans themselves, it kind of undermines the idea that there's any strong European commitment to Ukraine um, in light of the Russian annexation of the Crimea. Um, so with the annexation of Crimea um, and now this construction of Nord Stream 2 in the Baltic, Russia is increasingly um, exerting strategic control um, in the Black Sea and the Baltic uh, and through the Baltic itself um, in the future um, we're seeing increasing um, development and exploitation of natural resources in the Arctic um, due to global warming. Um, Russia has also recently announced the, uh, the latest generation of new nuclear-powered icebreakers, so I think that will be a, a zone of contention in the future. I think China's tried to increase its influence in the Arctic region as well, and I think they're probably going to do that alongside alongside Russia. So I imagine we'll see already China and Russia cooperate in areas such as the UN Security Council, so I imagine that's an area we'll see much more cooperation between Russia and China. I think we've seen similar with the United States uh, just recently. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, was in Denmark to talk, discuss several topics, including uh, Arctic, mm. uh, probably due to resources and security issues with China's influence and Russia as well. I think the Americans just the other day announced as well a special coordinator, I think was the title for the Arctic region as well. So I'll feed into that. Yeah, I think both of you have mentioned, you know, the so dependency that some states have on Russian gas and how they use this as a leverage, you know, over these countries. I think that sort of that's a key consideration in Russia's thinking, you know, especially in the Eastern Med. You know, so tensions have been gradually rising in this, uh, you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean for years now. Tensions in the area are so so centered around exploration of gas, natural gas reserves that have been found 
around Egypt, uh, Cyprus, Israel, and Greece. Now, all these countries, you know, and Turkey are looking to access these reserves, which would, among other things, you know, give them strategic leverage in the region. Uh, earlier this year, Israel, Greece, and Cyprus, they signed a deal for East Med Pipeline that, if built, will carry gas from Israeli and Cypriot gas fields to Italy and Europe through Crete. So while it is unclear if the construction of the pipeline will go ahead, uh, it will enable Europe, if it does, uh, to reduce its dependency on Russian gas imports. Uh, but Turkey weren't part of this deal. So Turkey, whose energy needs are also growing, and uh, they are also not signatories of the 1982 United Nations Convention regulating maritime boundaries. And Greece have long been involved in a dispute uh, over claims to oil and gas reserves over Cyprus. Uh, the Turkish side of Cyprus has laid claim to gas reserves on its territorial waters. And this has made things a lot more complicated, you know, especially on the Turkish side, since uh, that's you know, not internationally recognized. But this hasn't stopped Turkey sending ships uh, into the coastal waters of uh, Cyprus to drill for gas. The signing of the two deals between Turkey and Libya late last year, maritime boundaries, and military cooperation has increased tension further. So as part of this deal with the UN-backed Libyan government, Libya's maritime borders meet up with Turkey's maritime borders. And this maritime border, you know, together, they sort, it sort of cuts across the proposed route of the East Med gas pipeline. Uh, as part of this agreement, Libya and Turkey will launch joint maritime exploration activities and acquire... This, this, this sort of enables them to acquire a position of strength uh, in decisions concerning gas pipelines crossing these sections of the seabed. This has caused tensions to rise with Italy, with Greece, uh, Israel, you know, and the EU as well. So last year, the EU, they adopted a sanctions regime that targets individuals or entities, you know, involved in or responsible for unauthorized drilling activities of hydrocarbons in the eastern Mediterranean. Egypt is also another country that could, you know, significantly benefit from uh, these or these gas reserves in the Mediterranean. So I think it was in 2015 where they discovered the Zor field uh, just off the Egyptian coast. Uh, this is so far the largest find, gas find in the Mediterranean Sea. Egypt has turned into a net exporter of natural gas over the last few years, you know, and with its existing infrastructure, Egypt could also ship uh, significant quantities of LNG to Europe. Uh, so, you know, if the gas pipeline isn't built, so already Egypt holds you know, a lot of strategic value. And, you know, we talked a bit earlier about how, you know, Russia has leverage again, you know, over these, uh, you know, in countries in Asia and, and Europe as well. And I think this is why we're seeing increased Russian involvement in Libya. So I think it'd be interesting how that, you know, plays out in Libya, um, where obviously Turkey are also involved in fighting. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if this uh, impacts on, uh, you know, East Med Pipeline and how it all plays out. Yeah, and you mentioned maritime boundaries, and I think that's that flows nicely into kind of an example I want to use this week, uh, which is the case of Guyana and Venezuela. Uh, so the two countries have been fighting over uh, the maritime boundary in half of the territory of current day uh, Guyana, uh, which is the Essequibo region. Uh, Venezuela, uh, both countries claim that region, um, and it's from a longstanding uh, dispute. Uh, which seemed to have been resolved uh, back in 1899 when a ruling by two Americans and two Britons and one Russian um, had uh, said that Guyana, uh, it, the region belonged to Guyana. 
Uh, however, while it decided on the land boundary, it never decided on the maritime boundary. And it's this uh, maritime boundary that's quite contentious uh, t- today, uh, especially since in two, in, uh, the dispute kind of resumed in 1962 when Venezuela uh, tried to make another claim uh, over the territory. Uh, the dispute escalated in 2015 uh, when significant oil discovery uh, discoveries were made off the coast of this uh, region that's being disputed um, by ExxonMobil. Uh, so it's believed uh, that it's estimated that about 8 billion uh, barrels uh, is, the, is what the reserves are equal to. Uh, and recently this week, they've announced uh, a few more discoveries as well. Um, so in 2018, uh, that even escalated further when Venezuela intercepted a ship uh, exploring um, oil uh, in the coastal waters claimed by Guyana. Um, so this whole dispute has created um, quite the, the complex situation for oil companies uh, wanting to work uh, off the coast of Guyana. Uh, as we've seen before, whether it's 2018 or, or be even before, uh, Venezuelan Navy ships harassing oil exploration vessels because they believe that um, the oil reserves off the coast belong to them. Uh, so this whole dispute is coming to a head uh, recently uh, at the International um, Court of Justice, uh, which just held uh, its first um, virtual meeting uh, in, on the 30th of June due to COVID-19. Uh, and this meeting is basically to see whether the court has jurisdiction uh, to hear the case on the border dispute. Uh, Venezuela has didn't take part in the court proceedings because they say they don't recognize the International Court of Justice as a proper mechanism uh, to resolve this dispute. Um, we're expecting um, a ruling in the coming months, uh, so we'll we'll likely see um, what happens with, with this. And it's interesting because Guyana is also has the most international support behind uh, their claim. Uh, there's also kind of another example uh, in regards to kind of geopolitics. Uh, regarding pipelines. Uh, and that's kind of from the mid 2000s uh, with the proposed Venezuela Argentina gas line, which was a proposed 5,000 to 9,300 mile uh, gas pipeline, which would go from Venezuela to Argentina, uh, crossing via Brazil. Uh, and it would cost about 17 to $23 billion. Uh, the pipeline was marketed as an opportunity for a new regional cooperation uh, and independence from international markets. Uh, and at the time, President of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, uh, said that it would be a symbol of diminishing U.S. influence in Latin America. Uh, and so that was quite of interest for him. Uh, however, interest cooled down and the project never uh, took place. Around the same time, Hugo Chavez was going around uh, various countries in South America, um, proposing various oil and gas projects uh, across the region. And again, that was an effort to counter U.S. influence in the region. So we're seeing how, um, like Max ha- had said before, how certain actors are using pipelines and politics uh, as a means to kind of uh, use garner more influence of their own and kind of push out uh, actors uh, they don't particularly like. Uh, so I think, yeah, this this transitions well into domestic politics. Uh, so I think, it, Max, how about in your region uh, in regards to domestic politics, how, how does that fit in with uh, oil and gas industry? Yes, thanks, thanks, Vincent. I'm going to focus on the Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline, otherwise known as the Tapi pipeline. And this pipeline is being built by the Turkmen government up until the Afghan border, but until then, uh, up and from then on, the construction is halted. And the Afghan government, uh, whilst still yet to start major construction works on it, has been widely supportive of it and openly supportive of the project, seeing it as a way of of rebuilding the government after years of war. Has struggled. The Afghan government 
whilst whilst staying positive, has really struggled to um, to overcome the security challenges which face it. And it's these security issues which have largely caused the um, the pipeline to stop to stop construction. So to break these security issues down, the pipeline's route intends to run through west and southern Afghanistan. So it'll go through Farah, Herat, Kandahar, and Helmand provinces, as well as through part of Nimroz province. And Kandahar and Helmand province in particular are particularly uh, particularly um, are violent provinces, and the Taliban control significant parts of both of these provinces. On our platform, we record fighting almost every day, and a quick look at the incident map shows that Farah and Herat provinces aren't much more stable than Helmand and Kandahar, particularly the uh, Balabulok district in Farah itself, which is almost entirely controlled by the Taliban. And it's these route, these districts which the pipeline intends to run through. And with the withdrawal of U.S. forces seemingly go ahead without. Um, Without slowing down, it's hard to see how the already struggling Afghan security forces are going to are going to secure these rural areas, which for years have been under Taliban control. The Taliban themselves are a really important actor in this because, obviously, with it running through Taliban-controlled territory at times, uh, the Taliban are, have a significant amount of leverage. But the Taliban have also claimed that they'd support any project which supports the Afghan government and would improve the quality of life of the Afghan people. But like most militant groups, often the rhetoric coming from central leadership doesn't always translate into actions on the ground. And there have been cases of Taliban, local level Taliban commanders attacking officials affiliated with the uh, TAPI project. Also, as, as I'm sure you can expect, if you want to build a pipeline in a part of the world where road quality is incredibly poor, road construction needs to take priority in order to uh, for staff, vehicles and other construction traffic. However, in Afghanistan, the Taliban have explicitly opposed road construction based, uh, on claiming that it, it's, it's favor, it favours the Afghan security forces and allows the largely motorised Afghan security forces to get around the country much more easily. And so they've quite openly targeted road construction. So again, whilst they've well, they've agreed to support the TAPI project. There's plenty of other unknowns, such as road construction and the security of foreign workers in the country itself, that remain completely unanswered for the time being. So I think this is a really important example of the security challenges facing a pipeline. It's, yes, you can gain uh, support from local militant groups through coordination when possible, but at the same time, by in doing so, you're handing over a significant amount of leverage to said groups, and particularly in Afghanistan, where these are very rural areas this pipeline wants to go through, where the local government has very little control. So in uh, Africa, you know, I think the Niger Delta region of Nigeria is a good example. So this is an oil-rich region of Nigeria that remains uh, underdeveloped. You know, underdevelopment has been a key characteristic of this area. Uh, and what's worse is, you know, things like oil spills and the impact that this is having on the environment and people's livelihoods. Uh, you know, like fishing, for example, you know, which millions of people depend, in, depend on for income. Uh, over 2,000 oil spills uh, have reportedly not been cleaned. So it remains, an, you know, an issue in this area. And uh, anger has led to disillusionment. And this has caused some to turn to violence or militancy, you know. So while this has died down, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, uh, you know, such as attacks on oil installations, uh, other sort of illicit activities such as... Uh, oil theft, um, illegal refining of oil, uh, kidnapping as well, you know, they continue because much of these grievances still remain in place. Uh, I think I think it would be interesting with, you know, the COVID-19 crisis, uh, given, you know, the impact that this crisis is having on economies that, you know, largely rely on oil for income. Uh, you know, the situation has worsened significantly in Nigeria, so... Uh, it's sort of translated, you know, itself into budget cuts. So in Bayelsa State, for example, the budget has been cut from 242 billion naira to 
183 billion naira. And I think we can't forget, you know, the cascading economic impact that COVID-19 is having as well. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, unemployment and the impact on living conditions will possibly lead to a rise in insecurity and maybe in militancy. I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned uh, COVID-19 having an impact because um, I did see that in in Guyana, uh, ExxonMobil wasn't able to kind of bring in staff uh, to the country for a while because due to the lockdowns and the various uh, travel restrictions or border closures that are taking place. Uh, so I'm sure that's something that we not only see in Guyana, but elsewhere where oil projects uh, have slowed down due to the, due to those restrictions, which is, I guess, more kind of in our first section of international politics and, and relations in regard to border closures. Uh, I think in regards to, to my examples of how kind of dom- domestic politics uh, imp- impact kind of the sector, uh, I want to use two examples. So the first is Guyana, uh, but it's in regards to their current political uh, crisis that they're going through. Uh, so they held elections in March um, in which the current president uh, lost but refused to step down uh, despite several court challenges and international pressure to do so. Um, in the type of international pressure that we've seen uh, right now has been that the U.S. has announced that it would place visa restrictions on uh, individuals responsible for uh, being complicit uh, in undermining democracy in Guyana. So it's unclear yet to who that might be. It could be the president himself, uh, President Granger, uh, or anybody from kind of his party. Um, we've seen the U.S. before put uh, sanctions on countries um, like Venezuela, uh, who are, is the Western neighbor of Guyana. Um, and they tend to escalate these tensions as time goes on. Uh, so there, there's a risk that as the U.S., if this political tension continues domestically in Guyana, the U.S. imposes further uh, sanctions, which might uh, hurt uh, Guyana's oil and new oil industry um, before it even has the chance to properly take off. Um, delays in the resolution to this political situation has also cost uh, the country millions of dollars um, because of delays uh, taking place. And stability and predictability are key considerations for companies to invest uh, in a country. And therefore, with the current political crisis going on, uh, it could have an impact on future developments uh, in the country. However, with uh, oil reserves that have been discovered of the coast, I at the moment, I don't think that's likely, uh, but it all depends on how this uh, political situation uh, turns out. And we've seen as well Suriname, which is the eastern neighbor of Guyana, go through its own elections recently. Uh, and there was also a risk that uh, analysts weren't sure as to whether the president would step down. However, he has, and the transition has been peaceful, which is good uh, because they as well have discovered significant oil reserves off their own coast. Um, so we're seeing how kind of domestic politics and elections uh, play a role uh, in, in the oil and gas industry in those countries, especially, again, with Guyana. Uh, with the new administration, if the opposition comes in, there might be uh, new regulations put in place, whether environmental or economic, uh, including the rene- renegotiation of contracts with oil and gas companies regarding exploration and production. Uh, so that's something to keep an eye on uh, in the future. Uh, the second kind of example I want to use is also the relationship between countries and governments, oil companies, and indigenous populations. Uh, so in this regard, the example I want to use is Peru with the North Peruano pipeline, uh, which is a pipeline uh, that goes from the Loreto region uh, in the Amazon to the coast. 
Uh, and it's got a long history of spills with at least 20 spills reported between 2016 and 2019, uh, including uh, three in the span of five months in 2016, which led to the closure of a pipeline, uh, but it reopened in 2017. Uh, the pipeline is uh, controversial in that it runs through indigenous lands where villages and populations rely on uh, local rivers uh, for their water supply, uh, whether it be for their own consumption or for agricultural land. Uh, and so every time there's a spill from the pipeline, it creates tension with the indigenous community. Uh, and so we've seen these communities take action uh, before, uh, whether through uh, direct attacks on the pipeline. Uh, so we've seen uh, them rupture the pipeline in November 2018 over a uh, dispute uh, regarding local elections in which they uh, said electoral fraud took place. Uh, and during that time, they prevented the oil pipeline from coming in to repair uh, the oil company from coming in to repair the pipeline. Uh, this dispute was resolved in early 2019 uh, after the oil company and the government stepped in and worked out a deal uh, with indigenous communities to um, provide basic services to, to that community in order to come in and repair it. Uh, we've also seen indigenous populations occupy Vandos airfield uh, to protest against the National State Oil Company and Frontera Energy, which is a Canadian oil company, uh, which works with North Peruana Pipeline. Uh, and basically, the indigenous populations wanted basic services like electricity and, and water. Um, we've, so we've seen this kind of go on through, throughout the years. And it's not just with uh, oil and gas projects, but we've seen it with mining projects uh, and not just in Peru, but elsewhere in that uh, there's often negotiations that need to take place with local communities, whether indigenous or not, uh, between and the government and oil companies in regards to working out a deal, oftentimes, which includes uh, the provision of basic services, water, electricity, uh, road infrastructure, or other types of infrastructure like hospitals and schools. Um, so, yeah, and we've not only seen this in Peru, but we've also seen this uh, in the U.S. Uh, and in other countries. So in the U.S., we saw the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, which in 2016, there was significant protest around that project because uh, the proposed pipeline was to go under uh, a water reservoir, which was on an, an indigenous community. So the pipeline has continued to be embroiled in a number of core battles uh, in the last three years uh, to get the project to stop. Um, and just recently, uh, district court ordered it to shut down uh, and be emptied by the 5th of August um, in order for a proper environmental review uh, of the line to be completed. Uh, this has obviously been already appealed by the uh, oil company um, to try to stay the shutdown order and continue to operate while it's being appealed. Um, and so it's it's kind of showing kind of a David versus Goliath fight between indigenous communities and oil companies who have just a disparity of kind of resources. Um, so again, that example kind of showing uh, the necessity for indigenous communities, uh, local governments, uh, national governments, uh, and all parties to kind of come together and discuss uh, any type of projects. Um, how about you, Sky? And in Europe in regards to domestic situation? It's been interesting going around the table as in there's considerable opposition to pipelines in, in your areas of the world. Um, whereas in Europe, in terms of Nord Stream 2, the opposition is not so much about the building of the project. Um, domestic opposition um, seems to stem from, especially in the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, as in the loss of um, gas transit um, income that they're going to get. Because um, Russia already has a land-based um, gas pipeline, the Yamal pipeline. From Russia to Germany, uh, and obviously Nord Stream One is already 
being completed, Nord Stream 2 on in progress. So um, this project is unlikely to be shelved, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, when these large infrastructure projects are needed more now than ever for jobs creation and um, energy bill reduction. Um, so in the Eastern Bloc, certainly, again, opposition is based on loss of income. Um, but also over fears, perhaps, that they might be sidelined in favour of Western Europe. Um, Russia would be able to turn on the tap when it wanted. Um, and this then feeds into the idea that it might be able to exert increased political influence over the Eastern Bloc countries. I think in terms of domestic opposition, there might also be some from environmental um, activists, groups such as um, Extinction Rebellion, for example, um, especially um, after a large oil spill recently occurred in the far north of Russia, um, which has cost quite a lot in terms of actual monetary value and also reputation. President Putin himself has had to become involved to try and clear it up. Um, it's also a current trending topic in Russia just now, which has just seen um, an unseasonably warm summer and extensive wildfires across Siberia. Um, domestically within Russia itself, um, Putin has the opportunity to score a domestic win. Um, he's currently experiencing a bit of lull in popularity. However, if he somehow manages to secure a strategic win over the West, um, combines hopefully with some um, fall in domestic gas rates, um, there's the opportunity for him to come off better. Right. Well, I think to kind of finish as we've done previous episodes, can I just do a round robin of how kind of geopolitical uh, relationships and domestic relationships have a business impact uh, on these companies? Max, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I think with my region in particular, it's more at the local level where business is affected. So I spoke about the Tappy Pipeline earlier, and I think that really highlights the importance of security in these, in these areas. Because at the end of the day, you are running a static pipeline which is unprotected in the majority of its areas through at times war-torn countries so whilst these projects do have the backing of the government you do have to take into account is the government able to protect not only the pipeline itself but also the staff that are going to be working on the pipeline so i think from a security perspective not having situational awareness of the country and not only the country's politics but also the internal dynamics within that country's security situation is pivotal for many of these pipelines as they run across uh, often quite dangerous parts of the world Right. I think uh, a key thing to look out for in, uh, for this year or maybe you know, in the next couple of years is the increased militar militarization of you know well in the Eastern Med and uh, how this might uh, impact shipping uh, domestically. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if and how you know COVID nineteen impacts you know Nigeria. Uh, I think we will see more protests you know surrounding unemployment, uh, living conditions, and I'm sure. Oil infrastructure will infrastructure will be targeted. Scott, so generally Europe probably one of the more safest safer um, continents. However, I think perhaps Nord Stream might have the potential for more saber rattling between the Baltic countries and Russia um, in terms of the, their navies, um, and also perhaps for bloc countries such as Ukraine. Um, the ongoing conflict there, um, increased Russian influence, you know, might tip that situation one way or another perhaps into increased hostility um, however I think the project itself um, in terms of wider Europe hopefully the idea is to reduce um, the cost of energy prices in terms of gas so you might see increased um, infrastructure building um, stuff like that um, especially as Europe as a general whole shifts away from coal and energy and nuclear energy um, gas is on the up essentially 
Yeah, and I think in, in my region, I think it's it hits on, on a few points you guys have already made. And but I think time and money. Um, so seeing protests or attacks from indigenous communities on certain pipelines, um, or political crisis in Guyana, uh, just kind of poses delays on regulations, on construction, on exploration, on kind of the activities that oil and gas companies can uh, undertake, which in the end costs money not only for the companies themselves, uh, but also for the country. So in the case of Guyana, from a, a lack of oil revenue during this time. Thank you very much, team. And thank you to our listeners across all of our podcast channels. If you enjoyed this week's episode, you know what to do. Please like, share, and even drop us a comment on the video. Next time, the IEF team will be back to discuss China's growing influence across the world. See you then.